This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, I have Dave Reaver on uh, with me. Dave's from Mad Horse uh, Canine out in California. And uh, I know I've been fortunate in my career that I know a lot of people with a lot of experience, but I don't think you're going to find someone with uh, more years and more dogs under his belt than uh, Dave Reaver. So how are you doing today, Dave? Excellent. I'm up in the mountains, breathing fresh air. Nice. Nice. Out of the LA smog. So um, the reason I brought Dave on today is uh, these are unprecedented times. First, we had this... Uh, this coronavirus, and uh, we're recording this on the 16th of June, uh, 2020. And yesterday, the uh, Attorney General of California, um, every state right now seems to be wanting to enact new laws and new rules and new uh, uh, whatever they, however different ways they want to do it. They're uh, doing things that are going to affect our job as police officers in lots of different ways. So yesterday, the Attorney General of California said that uh, he made a lot of different recommendations. Some of them were the same as what many states have, banning chokeholds, de-escalation, a lot of different uh, reporting things. But he also threw in uh, canine, and I'll read it to you. Uh, what he wrote for his recommendation, he wrote canine use. All agencies should discontinue from the use of find and bite and bite and hold techniques, and instead they should implement a find and bark or circle and bark techniques where canines are trained and deployed to alert by barking rather than biting a suspect as a first response then circling and barking until the handler takes control. So I've been fortunate in my career. I've worked, uh, you know, if you want to call it circle and bark or detain, I've worked those dogs, trained them. And then I also, uh, our agency transitioned over and we went to handler control or find and bite. I'm very familiar with both of them. Um, Dave is a very big advocate of the circle and bark. And the reason I wanted to bring him on is that, you know, what, what starts in California a lot of times moves throughout the U.S. So whether this turns into something that's absolutely mandated for everybody in California or if people just listen to it, this is a subject that is going to be part of all of these other heated conversations that's going on with our profession right now. So as a dog handler, um, there's a lot of vitriolic reaction to people who've never worked a circle and bark dog or a detaining dog. I see it on social media. I see guys talk about how dangerous it is, but they don't really understand it. They don't know what it's all about. Um, so some of the myths that I hear are that it increases your training time tenfold. I think we'll, we'll be able to explain that, that that's not really the case, um, that it's dangerous. So there's a lot of reasons why if this comes to your agency, um, don't panic. It's not the end of the world. doesn't mean dogs don't bite people. It doesn't mean there's anything dangerous. So before you get mad, throw in the towel and say, I'll never work that kind of dog, hopefully maybe you'll hear some of the stuff that Dave's going to explain today about where it comes from, some of the advantages to doing it, and understand that should it come to your agency, you know, this is this is what to expect. So with that, I'll let uh, Dave just kind of explain, you know, your background in, in the, obviously, you know, you've been doing it for a long time. So if you want to just talk to me quickly about your background, Dave, I'd appreciate that. Well, my, my first introduction to the sport world was around 1960 when I, I was in Holland. Uh, and I spent two years in Holland and I spent two years in Germany. So I was uh, introduced to the, both the KPV programs and the Schutzen programs. And uh, I came back to this country in 1963, and uh, I had that knowledge, but of course, none of that existed in this country. 
around 1968, a, a dog by the name of Bodo Leerberg came to this country. Bodo was the German Seeger in 1968, and he was also in the days when the Seeger was also a good working dog. And uh, Eric Renner brought that dog here, and I had the chance to get a puppy out of Bodo. And I had that female, and I did some work with her on my own. Uh, again, there was no sport here in this country at that time at all. Uh, but this dog had a, had a good genetic background, so I was uh, interested. I was interested in, uh, in pursuing that. So around 1970, 71, 72, uh, the, uh, I think this Schutzen Club that, that we kind of formed here in Long Beach uh, was maybe the second one in the country. Garnot Riedel had a club in the San Francisco area, Redwood City, and Garnot was also uh, an old German, came over here from North Hessen uh, after the war, and he worked for Pan Am. So he was one of the first people to import dogs on a, on a kind of a regular basis. And some of them became police dogs, but Gernot was not interested in that training. Uh, so it was just uh, dogs that he provided for police departments in that area. Uh, but Gernot was a very knowledgeable guy and one of my uh, guys that I apprenticed under. And our club that we had here, uh, I had that female that I, that I had out of uh, Bodo, I had Justin Three in that dog. Then I bred her to a dog that was uh, a Quanto Vineral son. Quanto was not noted for being a good working dog, but I had a, a super, super male out of that. And that's, if you've ever seen our logo, that's, that's, that's Kai, <laughs> that's my dog. Uh, and I had Justin Three in that dog when he's 18 months old. And uh, so it, just, it, it, it was... Just sport. I was not in, in any kind of business. I, had, well, I was an electrical contractor at the time. Uh, but then I started training with Huntington Beach PD and doing it just for fun. I mean, I had no concept that it would ever be a business, but I'm working with these dogs. And at that time, they had one dog that if you took the leash off this dog, somebody was going to get bitten. Uh, and, and then they had another dog. That was wouldn't even bite a gunny sack, and he was never going to bite a gunny sack. But those were their dogs. Uh, so I was critical in, in a friendly way, and then they kind of challenged me, well, well, what would you do? Uh, so at the time, if anybody that was involved in that era, the time that it took to get a police dog ready was months and months and months uh, because they were getting dogs out of people's backyards. <laughs> So they challenged me, and I'm thinking, I've got another business. I don't have time to spend months and months training. So I bought two dogs from my club, and I sold them to Huntington Beach. And they were both ships and three dogs. And in, I think, four weeks, we had those dogs in service. So that they found that very interesting. Uh, and then I was contacted by Santa Monica, and then it just started. Uh, so. That was like 74. So 74 to 1980, I was doing the electrical business plus the dogs. And by then, we had probably a dozen departments that were relying on us. Uh, of course, after those first two dogs, I didn't have any more dogs. Uh, so I knew, obviously, people in Europe. And at that time, we were getting all of our dogs from Germany. 
So a couple of phone calls and I could get dogs from Germany that were German shepherds that often were sent with muzzles on. <laughs> I described dogs that I thought a police department needed. I mean, strong, strong dogs. Some of these dogs were, were too strong. Uh, and of course, uh, within a couple of years, we started uh, toning that down a little bit and, and getting uh, more normal dogs because nobody was doing it. It was it was easy to get those dogs. Easy to find those dogs that time. Uh, when I finally started going to Europe, then still in the 70s, uh, I could bring a dog. I could bring dogs back in Lufthansa for $65, and I just show up at the airport with eight or ten dogs and pay $65 a piece. Boom. Uh, and bring them back. So it was it was quite easy. Would you pay for the dog back then too? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, then we, the the Deutschmark was three and a half Deutschmarks to a dollar, so I could buy Schutzen two and Schutzen three dogs for fifteen hundred dollars. <laughs> uh, and of course, there were no contacts, so I just went to clubs. I went to different clubs, have a couple of beers, and ask somebody if they wanted to sell a dog. And then when I had enough dogs uh, for what I need, what I needed on that trip, uh, typically I would give them half the money, and then do the other half when they delivered the dogs to Frankfurt. Uh, and that worked. That worked for a while. Then uh, the first time I went to court was also in the seventies. I had never been in a court. <laughs> I had never even for a traffic ticket. So it was it was all new to me. Uh, of and course, you were still uh, working as an electrical contractor for your yes. job. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was a bite uh, that occurred in Huntington Beach, and it was a criminal case. Uh, so this guy was charged with a crime. I don't even know what they charged him with because it was 1992 before we had anything in our uh, uh, penal code that described what a police dog was. Uh, but anyway, the judge ruled in our favor, and that uh, I'm on the stand and. I've got this, this uh, the, the public defender asking me embarrassing questions. Like, did you sell this dog to Huntington Beach? Yes. Did you make a profit? Yes. Uh, well, who certified the dog? Well, I did. <laughs> and what standard did you use? Well, we didn't have a standard. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but we prevailed. And then uh, immediately after that, I started going to Post, California Post. I called him up. I said, look here, we've got police dogs in this state and no standards. And they were very nice on the phone, but they weren't, they weren't going to do anything for me. <laughs> uh, so we operated without a, without a standard. standard. And the standard that I was familiar with uh, from my education in Germany was North, Rhine, North Rhine and Westphalia, the PSP standard. So I just plagiarized it. And my blue book today is really the PSP trial. Uh, they didn't have a building search in that certification. And then and sometime in the 90s, they added a building search. <laughs> so they they then copied that from me. Anyway, that was the, the trial that or the uh, the uh, certificate that we or that we still use today. Basically, that PSP trial, we don't call it PSP. We call it something else. <clears throat> uh, and then about 1984, Riverside Sheriff's Department decided they wanted dogs. Their sheriff at the time was Ben Clark. And post was brand new in California in the late 50s, early 60s. Ben Clark was a big promoter of Post, but most sheriffs didn't like it because the sheriffs, and still today, they have a lot of autonomy. That's their little their little empire, 
and they don't want anybody from the state telling them what to do. Uh, but Ben Clark was a promoter of post. So when we, I went to Ben Clark and I said, look here, we need a standard. I wrote up a, a certification, a three day certification, Ben Clark under Ben Clark's signature. And once the post, it was rubber stamped, uh, approved. And that, that course, that course is still in place today since 1984. And that's a plan two course in the state of California, which means they pay backfill, uh, reimbursement, room and board. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a course you don't get anymore. Uh, that course is still in place today. Uh, but they approved it so quickly that around uh, four or five years later, they discovered there were no safety orders. So now they call us all or several of us to, to uh, Sacramento to write safety orders for this course. And then we started hammering and we need more, we need more, we need more. Uh, and post California then came on board in the early nineties with some watered down certification, which we still have today an evaluators course. Uh, but it's still a watered down. I mean, it, it's it's easy. <laughs> uh, you could uh, you know train a, a weekend and you could almost pass that course. But that that is the standard, and a suggested standard is not mandated at all. Uh, anyway, that's been in place now uh, almost thirty years, and then they dropped off. They, they dropped out of it uh, around two thousand ten, and then again there was a loud outcry from from handlers throughout the state and they came back and uh, recertified it almost exactly the same as it was. So now we have a California certification, uh, which is pretty easy. It's a baseline uh, for sure. Yeah. And then prior to the, I think 1992, uh, there was no definition of what a police dog was in the state of California. We had vicious dog legislation in California, which they still have. If your personal dog bites a burglar, or bites two burglars. You have two times a burglar is breaking into your house and your dog bites him by law. That's a vicious dog. Uh, so the police were not exempt from that. Uh, in 1992, again, we campaigned for that and we got a, uh, a definition of a police dog, which is exempt from that vicious dog legislation. But again, that's within the last 30 years. So, I mean, that's all relatively new. Uh, and, uh, even that was with, it was difficult to, uh, to, uh, to get, uh, in the beginning, as you know, uh, we relied a lot. I mean, I, 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 we still traveled to Europe seven or eight times a year, but back then I was going to different schools, primarily North Rhineland, uh, and developing the way that the Germans were doing things. I think we learned from the Germans in those days, but now in this era and, and for the last 20 years, we've passed up the Europeans. So we were, when I say we, I, I don't mean me, I mean our country as a whole, uh, we have much better policing and we have much better police dogs than they have in Europe. They're still bound by the Germans are bound by, uh, how much they can pay for a dog, uh, in, it's been many years, the Germans and the Dutch, uh, it's been forbidden to use e-collars and pinch collars. Uh, it was never reinforced, but now in recent years, it's reinforced. Uh, so. Yeah, that's that, going to water down the dog quite a bit yeah. then. Yeah. And, and, uh, we're able to buy, buy more dogs that 
we didn't have access to before because the Germans and the Dutch can't buy those dogs. Because, or they buy them and then they discover that they're, they can't control them with affection training. So uh, they're offered to us. Uh, and we've had, you know, pretty good dogs out of that, out of that group. So clearly, clearly you have a, I mean, the experience you have and the, the number of dogs you've seen is, is probably second to none. And, and that's where, you know, when we came into the, the, today, we're talking about the, the circle and bark, find and bark. Tell me how you feel about that and where, where, where your feelings are and why, why you, why you uh, train that and stuff. Well, again, when I, when I started this, I had no concept that if you stand at the door and make a loud announcement and somebody doesn't respond, which means they're probably burglars and they get hit by a dog, what rights could they possibly have? Uh, of course, we learned that that's not the case. Uh, so uh, in Europe, the dogs have been, ever since von Stefanitz in, the, in the 1899, Part of their certification has been to do this garden bark behavior. The garden bark behavior, uh, as far as the sport goes, it's just a, ma a matter of discipline, but it's also develops confrontational behavior. Uh, and it's, uh, in my opinion, it transcends just having a dog that will do the garden bark. To, to, to train that properly, you need good helpers and you can, in a matter of Sometimes minutes, you can develop a dog's reviewing the, the helper as an, an opponent, as opposed to somebody that's just holding the sleeve. Uh, so it's, they learn uh, that they're fighting with a man. So that was my reason. I had nothing to do with protecting anybody. Uh, it was but, basically to develop an adversarial relationship with that decoy as opposed to... Just a, exactly. a decoy handing them a, a toy. And, and then again, uh, going back to the Europeans, uh, in, until 1945, there were no civil rights laws in Germany. But all through that time, they trained their dogs to do the garden bark. Uh, and they were, they were trained by people that were dog people. They weren't necessarily dyed-in-the-wool Nazis or whatever, but they knew how to make the more efficient dog. So, I mean, everybody that's trained a police dog has trained also a detection dog. So a detection dog, bomb dog, drug dog, uh, they have to indicate to you 100% when they have found an odor. That is the odor right there. And then they get rewarded. Now, the same people train a police dog to go through a building and self-reward. So when he finds somebody in the building, he bites them. Uh numerous i mean when you train this way you will develop a pattern where a dog will go through the building find somebody behind the door and in his mind that doesn't meet the criteria of of what he is in that building for i know he's there but i can't bite him behind that door so i'm going to move on and find somebody else uh if somebody else is available if not then he might come back to that door again but right from the beginning the dog has learned how to open that door. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that's the original concept. The dog comes to the door. There's somebody behind the door. And then, you uh, you know, Pavlov taught us that all behavior has a time frame. So you develop a time frame. Whether the dog comes to the door, he barks five times, the door's open. Then you go to 10. Then you go to 50 or 25. Then you go to 50, 100, 150. And finally, 
you've got a doll that will sit in front of a door for a minute and a half barking, waiting for that door to open. Uh, so to be real- fair, a lot of a lot of agencies that do do find and bite do that training also. They exactly, but they but they they also in most cases they distribute now uh, where the, the dog is allowed to self reward. Uh, you know, there was let's put the suit on, go in that building, and do something, and the doll is going to find you. Well, that's great. That's very gratifying. That makes the dog storm through the building. He's got a lot of enthusiasm, but he's basically not even looking for a man. He's looking for a sleeve uh, or looking for the suit. Uh, when you get back to this foundation training, when you're training this behavior, you're training it with a young dog on a leash, obviously, and all the corrections are coming from the handler. And finally, the dog learns. Oh, I can sit in front of this guy and bark. Uh, and when I do that, I'm going to get a bite. But now you evolve that into the sport people do this. And we do it emphatically when we test the dog. In other words, now this dog understands what a garden bark is. So when he comes in, I'm standing in the blind. There's no handler present. And the dog just says, oh, look at this guy standing here. I'm going to bite him. Uh, and when he bites me, I give him the command to let go. And if he doesn't let go, then he gets whopped over the head. <laughs> uh, and when we test, we test dogs this way. And when you tell the dog that he can't bite you, uh, a lot of dogs just leave. Okay, if I can't bite, I'm not, I'm not hanging around here. The good dog, uh, it, 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 it increases an adrenaline flow, and he starts now looking at you as an adversarial opponent as opposed to somebody holding the sleeve. Uh, you know, I, I liken it to uh, the sport. I mean, I, I was a big judo player. I still am for many, many years. I've taken all my boys to play judo. And when they're little boys, you take them on the mat and uh, you toss them some techniques. You throw them to the mat. They hit the mat with such force, there's an imprint in the mat. Get up. And they get up. And when they attack me properly, I hit the mat with the same force. Over a period of 30 minutes, I'll hit the mat twice or three times as often as they do, if they attack properly. But what they're learning, they're learning by doing, and what you learn with an adrenaline flow, you tend to retain much greater than when you just learn something by rote. Uh, So, you know, using the defense behavior, when you tell your dog to release a bite or to march him up to somebody to bark, he does, he complies. He complies to defend himself from what is going to happen to him if he doesn't do it. Now, when the handler does it, that is the fence submission. In other words, I, my boss wants me to do this. If I don't do it, then he might hurt me. He might give a tug in the pinch collar. Uh, but now the dog has learned that. And now when he comes in the blind and he says, oh, this, look at this guy standing here. I'm going to bite him. And then I tell him, "Let no, you're not going to bite me. Well, he defends himself by not biting me or letting go but he's doing this in an aggressive way. So that is the fence aggression. In other words, instantly a good dog, almost instantly, the dog starts viewing you as an opponent. Uh, and then as you develop this technique, you, you push the sleeve and, and or if you're, when you're using a sleeve, I like to use a sleeve so that you're not completely protected with the suit. Uh, and you start moving that sleeve around. If he follows the sleeve, he gets hit in the head. Uh, in a very short period of time, that dog doesn't see the sleeve anymore. Uh, 
And when you do this type of training, when you do it the way that I've been trained to do it, you're going to get bit occasionally. Uh, that the dog now is looking at you as an adversarial opponent. And an opponent is not an enemy. An opponent is the same as an opponent when you get on the mat. You get on the mat with a judo player, a wrestler, for five, ten minutes, that's your opponent. Uh, but you're not angry at him, and you, uh, he's not an enemy. And that's the way a dog, that's a, the way a good dog views this. He doesn't know what a criminal is. He bites us 95% of the time. Uh, and when he's doing that, his tail is wagging if it's done, if you have the right dog. Uh, and when they're biting Charlie Manson in a building, it's the same feeling. I mean, their tail is wagging, and this is, this is great. So that behavior, and every dog can't do that. You know, you have a lot of dogs that are, that are, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're, the balance is not there. In other words, the prey is for the sleeve. And when you take that away, it's very difficult then to trash, transition into the man. Uh, in the old days, they taught a lot of dogs to bite out of defense. I mean, the, the dogs they were getting out of backyards were dogs that weren't enjoying the biting so much. They were doing it out of defense. And the hair is up in the back and they're showing their Tails teeth. down. But they're still biting people. Yeah, the tail will uh, be down, pull yeah. away, yeah. And they thought that was fine. Uh, but uh, obviously that's not fine. <laughs> so that, that, you know, that I, it, it wasn't my invention, but I kind of introduced it to this country, I think, that behavior. And then as the courts, uh, you know, everything that we've, that we've taken to the court has been, most of it has been ruled in our favor. Uh, you know, the Ninth Circuit, because the Ninth Circuit is the most liberal circuit in the country, we are only the only circuit that has two appellate cases, and we have two appellate cases that place the dog as less than lethal. Uh, in both those cases, I was the expert in, and one once you have that, you can quote those cases. The last one, Lowry versus San Diego, they the, the, when when that went up to, in front of the end bank hearing, one of the you know when you read four or five pages of their decision, you can quote anything out of those pages. One of the things that they say in there, as a policeman, it's your job. If you suspect someone has broken the law, your job is to find them and take them into custody. It's that simple. <laughs> so what what do we have that's better for locating people than a dog? And uh, when when uh, you know now that the dog is considered less than lethal, then one of our big friends, believe it or not, is Amnesty International. When you go on their webpage. They're making all kinds of claims about batons, tasers, chokeholds, all these things that have killed so many people. Uh, and we have one death from a police dog. And that's back in Tennessee, been back in the, in the, uh, in the 80s. None for the rest, no deaths. So, uh, you know, that. I mean, we, we, we've had a little bit of weakening here in California where now it's, it's, it's been determined that was a case. Uh, Smith versus Hemet, which I was not involved in, but in that case, they should the, the dog should be considered. Uh, oh, what's the what's the term? But not not deadly, but it can cause great serious bodily harm. Yeah, serious bodily injury. Yeah. I think they said. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's what they throw at us yeah. now. So, so if 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 somebody's listening to this and they're in whatever agency anywhere in the country, they've been working a handler control, find and bite, what call it what you want. And their chief comes to them and says, "Hey, this is what uh, we're seeing." Because 
obviously, you know, we know IACP is uh, suggested to go to a detaining model or a, a circle and bark model, and uh, now that California. So, what would you tell those officers? I mean, the first thing that that I always hear when I tell them there's good and bad about both. The first thing I hear is that, you know, a circle and bark dog doesn't bite anybody. So, what you're explaining that in Germany in the 30s and 40s they were circle and bark. I suspect those dogs bit people. Oh yeah. So, yeah. so that's certainly not true that a circle and bark dog won't bite anybody. Well, I think what people don't understand is that when you look at it in the, the the vein you're showing it, is that we as dog handlers and trainers, maybe we could embrace some of this idea that it's going to train the dog to be a little bit better. The dog's going to, you know, like one of my experiences have been between the two types is that a prone passive person under a bush is sometimes difficult uh, for a, a new dog that is a find and bite dog because it's such a different picture, you know, if you don't do a lot of muzzle training even then. But for a uh, dog that is trained in, in detain or circle and bark, that's just another day in, in, the, in the park for them. They go find the guy and they bark at him until they can get the person to move. So they won't leave that person as readily um, as, as somebody else. That's been one of my, my positives as well as you, you touched on it too. I think uh, when you're training this way, you get a more um, efficient dog because they're, they're concentrating on the searching. They're not the guided missile running out there. They have to kind of slow down a little bit. So while I'm not really advocating either way, because I, I could argue either way why, why I think some are better than the others, what I do want to say is that if, if for some reason a, an agency is listening to this and they're hearing it, they can understand it's not the end of the world. They're still gonna they're still gonna be a very valuable canine unit, and they're still gonna be able to operate within these confines. I think pretty efficiently. Wouldn't you agree? If they had to switch over. Oh yeah, yeah. And and you know, again, I I none of that. Uh, you know, I've been involved in seventy some loss lawsuits or cases uh, where excessive force was always the issue. Obviously, they didn't all go to trial, but two of them went to trial, uh, and because it was adjudicated in our favor. Uh, it was appealed, and the end bank hearing came back with case law for us. Uh, but uh, the uh, the uh, I don't have a dog that I'm responsible for that I can't can't take in the courtroom. I've taken them in the courtroom. Uh, but also, what? You know, why did your dog bite my client? Uh, in most cases, we don't see that, so we don't see that that contact because we made an announcement. Uh, we have justified in court, never to an appellate level, that once I am entering a building that I think a violator might be in, and I now have told him where I am. I'm right here. I'm coming in the building, but I have no clue where he is. So why should I go in that building when I've got a dog? So my dog is going to go in that building. He'll tell me when he found somebody. So often I don't see that initial contact, but in my testimony has always been that there, the dog has received some permissive behavior from the person that he found to bite. Uh, and that can be a flinch of, you know, I was asked in court by Donald Cook, Mr. Reaver, can you describe a furtive movement? Yeah, what, what, uh, it's difficult to describe a, a furtive movement, uh, uh, especially to an animal that doesn't have any reasoning ability. So a quick movement is... A, Technically, a, a furtive move, uh, and it's it's been accepted. I mean, we've always have accepted that. Uh, and the other thing is, we know. I mean, right from the beginning, that this is it's. There's nothing that you do. There's nothing you do as a policeman, uh, as a brain surgeon, 
that is 100% perfect. <laughs> uh, brain surgeons make mistakes, and you just hope they're not working on your brain when they make that mistake. Uh, so we, we can never go to court and say, yo, this is perfect. This dog is perfect. Uh, and what's passing? You know, passing is 70%. Uh, but typically, we're passing more at 90%. I mean, we're looking for something close to 90%. That means there's a 10% margin of error. Uh, so why did your dog bite my client? Well, I'm, in most cases, I didn't see it. Or I've used him as a, a direct level of force. In other words, when, I, when somebody's in the bushes, I know he's in the bushes, come out of the bushes. And when I tell my dog to bite, he's going to bite. Uh, and that's, so there's a good point, too, is that some people don't realize that, that there's an override command. So this dog... That again, they, some people have told me, oh, they don't bite. You could send the dog without telling him to circle and bark, and he'll go straight in and bite because that's what he wants to do. It's just a new command. And, and they, my experience has been when we teach dogs that override, they love that game because it's just one more, one more time they get to a, get a, do what they really want to do. You know, one of the first things you learn with dog training is when you frustrate and drive, you tend to increase drive. Uh, and when a dog is able to just, satisfy himself every time well he does it but when you frustrate him and drive when you've got this dog doing a garden bark right in your face uh when he bites he bites harder uh uh and i mean even to the point and you know i i'm not saying that everybody can do this or maybe even should try to do it uh but with our dogs i can do it i mean 99 percent effective where i'm controlling the handler's not even there the dog's biting. I tell him to let go. He lets go. If he doesn't let go, boom. Uh, I tell him to lay down. He lays down. I tell him to bark. He barks. Uh, but while he's laying down, I get right down in his face and I start yelling and screaming. Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Like you would do in the field. And the dog's staying there. But then I whisper, bus. And when I say that, they bite. Yeah. <laughs> and they bite hard. Uh, <laughs> so it's very clear. Uh, you know, one of the problems you have with policemen is they they tend to, they, they get their intonation wrong. In other words, what you're trying to show the dog is yelling and screaming is what we do before you get the bite. In other words, let me see your hands, let me see your hands, show me your hands. Uh, you, don't, you don't respond to that. You stand, but when you get that permissive tone, then you bite. Uh, but the handlers make the mistake of using the word, but in that same tone, and sometimes the new dog is confused. What's, what's he saying? I've got, I know that word, but he's yelling and screaming. Uh, so I'm not sure what that means. Uh, and that's, that's, and, that's for another show, but I've seen that many times when I help officers with uh, release problems. Uh, they'll, they'll have so many precursors to before they ever say the release, the show me your hands, show your hands, and that dog starts spinning themselves up, you know, gets all that stress from prior poor training long before the release word ever comes that all that frustration is built into them and they're never going to release at that point. So I understand what you're saying. So again, just kind of wrap it all up that if this comes your way, it's not the end of the world. You're still going to do it. Uh, you're still going to, you know, your dog's going to still be a, a good police dog. There's a lot of uh, places I'm sure you could reach out to Dave. I'll put the show notes in the show notes. I'll put all the out of the horse canine contact information. You pick his brain. If you need to start going down that road, uh, Utah post, uh, does a lot of detaining training. There's lots of lots of agencies that, that could help you if, if this is mandated. The last thing I'll touch on, Dave, is between the two, do you agree or disagree if there's any extra training time? I, I guess that's the, the one thing a lot of people try and tell me, oh, then all, all you do is spend all your time training 
the circle and bark and you never do anything else. What would you say to those people? No, I don't think so. I, th- I think that once, when the foundation is laid and the foundation, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously exceptions. Dogs are, you have some dogs that are just so tough and so strong that it's very difficult to get that message across to them. Uh, but we've learned how to buy dogs <laughs> by not necessarily getting dogs like that. Uh, and then the ones that are soft, when you put that pressure on them, then they, they crumble. You know, they, they don't want to hang around. But the ones in between that look at it like a judo player looks at it, you're an opponent and I want to kick your ass. And I know that I can because I've done it now several times in this little exchange that we just had. Uh, so that uh, once that foundation is laid, then you, you reinforce, I mean, you're training and you, you reinforce the behavior by using inexperienced helpers sometimes and using doors and using cages. Uh, for the, the, the process is the same. In other words, you don't get to bite me unless you sit here at this door and bark at a predetermined number of times. Uh, and that, when, once that's ingrained in the dog's head, then it doesn't take skill. It only takes somebody that knows how to open a door after 25 barks or after 50 barks. Uh, but you're reinforcing the behavior. And when you go to and your training record and when you go to court, You've got that as a record. We trained the garden bark. We didn't necessarily train it with a man in the open. Uh, we do in our in our program. We've got several hundred dogs that we're responsible for with maintenance training. Once a year, we videotape those dogs doing a garden bark on a man in the open. Uh, but that man is yeah. it's it's usually me. <laughs> uh, but but the point is, it's still. You're not, you know, you're not lying. <laughs> you take this video to court. You say, "Look at here, this, this is this dog." So on your on your training days, it's not like you have to spend all your training night teaching a garden bark. You, you, it's no different than doing a little other maintenance training, teaching a, a recall, teaching a release, tuning up a building search. It's just part of part of the whole repertoire. You're not spending hours and hours doing that. You know, with, uh, if we're doing that video with ten dogs, it takes 30, 45 minutes. That's it. Uh, and, uh, again, I've taken dogs in the courtroom and, uh, and they perform admirably. I think that's good. That's a good, powerful, uh, you know, to a jury to show that, that the trainer here is willing to stand here in front of this dog with, with no equipment to, to prove that he does it. So I think that's good. I guess one final thing that I will say is that I've helped some agencies, uh, set up dog, uh, canine programs. And if you're going to use, you know, find uh, find and bark or detain or whatever. The one thing that you need to make sure you educate, not just your admin, but also um, your like city council. I helped set up a smaller agency, and they were going to do detaining at first. They ended up changing their mind later you know, for a few reasons. But one of my concerns for that department doing detaining was the people on city council who were going to pay the bills for this were all excited, and their assumption was they would never have a dog bite in their small town. And I, so I said, no, absolutely. You're, you're, if you have a good dog and you have the right circumstances, you'll have a dog bite. So I guess you know, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't let people start thinking that this, this is a way that your dogs will never bite anybody. You know, because then if, if you're the, the expert handler, when it comes to your agency and you're challenged with this, make sure you go back to your chief or whoever is wanting to mandate this and go back and give them a lot of good education to show we can do it, we can train it, the dogs will be just fine, but they're still going to bite people. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and, and and as a matter of fact, they're I think they're quicker <laughs> to uh, 
to view the human as, as I said, the human is an opponent. Uh, and, uh, you know, like, I mean, it's amazing to me nowadays how many policemen have never been in a fight before they became a policeman. Uh, and fighting, to me, fighting is fun. Uh, you know, I love to fight. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about railing in, in the street, brawling with people, but I love to get on the mat. And when I get on the mat, sometimes I get on the mat knowing, I mean, I'm an old man now, and I'm getting on the mat, I know this guy's going to kick my ass. Uh, but I'm here <laughs> uh, because he's younger than me and he's stronger than me. Uh, I get on the mat with my son, Michael. Well, he kicks my ass. Uh, but when he was little, I used to kick his ass. But the point is, I still enjoy getting out there. And that's the same. That's what I see in the dog's eyes. Uh, and some of these dogs, because I've done it or Michael's done it with them, uh, they, the dogs haven't seen you for a year, maybe. And they look at you and their tail is wagging and they're barking and say, that's the guy. That's the guy I have all the fun with. Uh, yeah. And that's to me, that's it's beautiful to see. Uh, and. It's, there's no reason why he can't take that feeling out into the into the world, and they do. Uh, I know that. Uh, I think. I mean, you know, failures. I mean, there's nothing. There, uh, you will have failures, obviously, but uh, I think failures to bite are less frequent with our dogs than with a lot of other dogs that are self that are allowed 100% of the time just to gratify themselves with no compulsion. And I think science, it'd be easy to explain that, just the science of, as you were talking about, a little frustration to get that dopamine built up. Then when it's like, now it's time to bite, I'm not messing around. I'm not going to test bite this. I'm going to go in, I'm going to bite really hard as I've been trained to do. So, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense when people kind of sit back and look at the, the big picture of it. So, And when the other residual is that, you know, we've had, uh, here after Kerr versus West Palm Beach, that was adjudicated in favor of the plaintiffs and a bunch of attorneys here in California went crazy with that. Uh, they thought we're going to make a lot of money. Uh, they didn't have any uh, any idea of some of these terms, but in a very short period of time, when when I when we're able to explain the garden bark behavior or demonstrate it, they don't even bring that up anymore. In other words, they don't. They don't. They're never asking me in court about this behavior because it sounds too flowery. But we'll bring it out in in, in our side of the testimony that the dog is trained to garden bark. And again, uh, it's always my, I don't have any control over this. I mean, whenever an attorney contacts me and says, we've got this dog bite case, uh, one of the first things I do is let's put the dog on the witness list. Whether he ever shows up in the courtroom or not, put him on the witness list because he's he's a percipient. I mean, he's there. Uh, and I've taken the dogs into court and they've performed admirably. And then, you know, uh, Stephen Yagman, the most successful civil rights attorney we had out here asked me one time, Mr. Reaver, what did you do with that dog before you brought him in the courtroom? I said the same thing you do with all of your witnesses. I went over his testimony before <laughs> I brought him in here. I got him ready for, for court. <laughs> and in this case, it was Santa Monica. I mean, I brought the dog in the courtroom. That's I mean, I'm perfect. Uh, that the, the, the handler's there as a defendant. I bring the dog in uh, and we did a call off and, Perfect. No problem. Yeah, just to show. Well, yeah. Dave, I appreciate you taking the time today. We kind of we just touched base about this, and then you jumped on the call right away with me because it's a timely, uh, real timely thing. So, really, like I said, I, I've been yeah research. I, I mean, I'm I'm uh, you know my uh, my son's running most of the business now. I'm still 
obviously involved. Uh, but I mean, it, 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 my feeling on this is for the for the industry as a whole. I mean, one bad case law could screw up the the industry. Uh, we've been, I think, very fortunate. You know, weaponless defense. There's a lot of things in law enforcement where people have gone to the dark side, and we have several have gone to the dark side. Uh, dog people too, uh, but they're ineffective because the reason they went to the dark side is discoverable. And by the time you bring that out, uh, there's no credibility. Uh, so, but I agree. Uh, and, and people sometimes, I think, over the years, have always said, you know, that like what you just said, one bad case could change everything. Well, look what look what the hell's going on in our country right now. One bad, uh, you know, decision in Minneapolis is going to change our industry for, forever. And and we were getting to the point where people were kind of liking cops again. You know, over 30 years in my time, I've seen it up, ebb and flow, but I've never seen this much kind of vitriolic behavior towards our profession before. And it's going to, there's going to be residual effects. There's no, no way canines are going to be not part of some of those residual effects. This, this case in Atlanta, I mean, people tend to like dogs, you know, I mean, the, the military dog, I mean, those dogs are, are heroes. Uh, and if they would have sent the dog after that guy, it would be nothing. I mean, we wouldn't be hearing about it. He would be bitten, he'd be taken to the ground. And they might have started a, a, a lawsuit for excessive force, but it would not have got this natural uh, uh, press. Uh, because as much as some of these liberals don't like policemen, they tend to like dogs. Yes, yeah. everybody everybody <laughs> and, loves dogs and respects them. So, and and it's one of our jobs is that is to make sure the job is that we get the right dog for the job, the right training, uh, and use them and and and. In other words, let the public see them and sell them while you have people uh, uh, view them in a negative in a negative way. Yeah. So I'll put uh, the Adler Horse contact information. I'm sure Dave and, and his son, Mike, they don't mind, uh, you know, if you reach out to them, talk to them if this comes your way or you just have, you know, other training questions or whatever. Uh, uh, so much knowledge just from the two of them. I, I uh, you know, I feel fortunate to be able to pick either one of their brains. So. Um, thanks, Dave. I appreciate you jumping on, you know, at a short notice, um, but this is a real timely thing. So uh, in a future podcast, uh, we're going to sit down. I want to pick your brains about some of the adventures you had, you know, going into Europe in the 70s and stuff. I think people would be real interested in hearing some of those uh, those experiences. So thanks again, and thanks everything for what you're doing for our industry. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come the HITS 2021. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come to HITS 2021 where the investment is well worth the return. HITS 2021 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffles and gifts and free cash than ever before. HITS is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there and we've been there too.